If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, part of the Christians for Liberty Network. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Winograd. So for today's episode, which is the first episode of the new year, here in uh, 2024, you're going to listen to an interview I conducted with Jose Galison of the No Way Jose podcast. Jose has been on my show before and my old show, the Daniel 3 podcast. I've been on his. We actually started podcasting around the same time. Uh, fellow libertarian, anarchist. He is not a Christian, although he is Christian friendly. <laughs> and he has been doing a lot of work over the last year or so on a subject, the Oklahoma City bombing, or known as OKC, and digging into some of the problems and holes in the official narrative of that story. And I find that this is a subject that is a sort of intro into looking into how governments are not always trustworthy and that a lot of times the narratives around certain tragedies or certain events that happen have holes in them the more we look into them. And in this conversation, I asked Jose to talk about his journey as far as looking more into this event, the problems with the official narrative and the suicide of Terrence Yeeke and other people involved. And then we kind of springboard off of that into a conversation about conspiracy theories in general and about the role of questioning <laughs> the narrative and whatnot and good and bad ways of doing that and just sort of what it means to be people who are aware of these things and how that can be difficult in social settings because people look at you like you're wearing a tinfoil hat when you start talking about some of this stuff. But, you know, I think when things like Epstein Island and his list of passengers and things like that got released, I think a lot more people started to realize like, oh, wow, you know, this is the kind of thing that would have seemed inconceivable before, but this was real and we didn't know about it. How many other things do government and high-rolling elites, you know, are they involved in that we're not aware of? So anyway, I hope that this is a conversation. Again, uh, Jose is a fellow libertarian anarchist, not a Christian. So well, there is some difference in worldview there, but I do find his work and what he does on his podcast to be valuable. And I hope that you enjoy this conversation. Jose, how are you doing tonight? Good, good, good. And happy to be here. It's been a long time, long time since we've talked, but here we are. Yeah, I think you're probably the, probably the most frequent guest I've had on my multiple shows going back to when we both started and been super cool to see you kind of take off, go on Timcast and stuff and be doing good work and getting into, I guess, kind of investigative journalist almost sort of role with the stuff you've been getting into. People who watch my show, a lot of them probably know you, but for those who don't, maybe before we get into the topics for today, just go ahead and uh, introduce yourself and give a little bit about your background and what your podcast is about. 
Yeah, uh, Jose Galassani already said that. The No Way Jose show is kind of, really, there's not an overly defined show. That's kind of part of the purpose of calling it No Way Jose and instead of like, I don't know, Biblical Anarchy yeah, or something. Say, yeah, to the exact opposite <laughs> of me. I boxed myself in pretty good. <laughs> but I mean, even then, I still kind of like, I am in that same vein, libertarian stuff, anarchy. I mean, when I first started, I was much more theory heavy. But I mean, I really did just kind of like cover sort of one. It's actually funny when I first started, I had a very narrow scope of what I had in mind, but I just so happened to go with it, expand like a open-ended name. And then just as time went on, it's just like I kind of expanded and wanted to do more. But then after, like when I first started, my whole thing was like, I want to be cultural and not political because I was really big in the aggregate thing. I think there is something there, but I didn't really want to put my hand behind my back. And so I just wanted to kind of talk about whatever I wanted to talk about. Then it became libertarian theory a lot. And now it's become a lot more what people call parapolitics, which is stuff like, I don't know, the Boston bombing, Sandy Hook, Oklahoma City bomb, like stuff that's like kind of sort of true crime-ish sort of like base. It usually tries to be a little bit more factual. I mean, that's not any, throw any sort of slight towards people who like to talk about stuff like Nephilim and stuff like I find that stuff fun too, <laughs> but it's just not what I really, I mean, I like to listen to that stuff, but I generally don't really care to talk about it, at least not on my show too much. But that's kind of where my head's been at, especially after I really, the probably the biggest thing I've made my bones on was the Oklahoma City bombing coverage I've done, which I mean, I say I've done, but most of that was really with the help of Richard Booth, who I got on to do a huge series, I believe, eight part series we did on my show. That's something like around 15 hours or so. And then I added extra little stuff here and there. There's like a bonus episode, Ken Silva, and there's some other stuff that I covered more. And there will be one releasing soon. I know we're recording this for the future, so it will already be on my playlist by that time. I have an interview with Tanya Yiki, the widow of Terrence Yiki, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit. And that was I mean, I don't know how things play out, so maybe I'll be put my foot in my mouth a little bit. But at least at this point in time, the understanding is that we were going to release it. Me and a Tim Cash journalist, Chris Bertman, he's writing an article on like, I mean, not necessarily on the interview, but just kind of on Tanya. He co-hosted that episode with me and he's going to take that and he's going to talk to her more and kind of create his own big old article that should be dropping the end of November, beginning of December. But for you guys watching this in the future, it should be out already. The episode should already be on my playlist. There should be a Tim Cast article for you to see. It's weird talk in the future like this. Who knows? Maybe things right. change. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Assuming assuming the future is written, there will be links to all this in the show notes for this episode. <laughs> yes. So, uh, uh, but yeah. So yes, that's kind of where I found myself because I did find my like. Well, I said that like Richard Booth helped a lot, but I genuinely was curious. That's why I kept digging. When I first brought on Richard Booth, I was only intending to do like one episode. And then as he was talking, it's kind of like, holy sh**, there's a way, or, or, or I'm a, sorry, holy poop. I forgot I'm on the Christian. That's all right, we can, we can edit all that out. <laughs> but I just was genuinely interested, especially, I started with Yiki. That's why it's like near and dear to my heart, because that is what like, I literally saw a little like two minute little video from this individual named Jinx on Twitter who makes these things called edits. For anyone who's on Twitter knows that it's just kind of like a music video with little cool clips and stuff usually has some sort of meaning behind it. But yeah, that he did one on Yiki and that was like, whoa, and that sucked me. And I started, it just seemed unbelievable that that happened. I looked into it, it's real. And then once you start dig into that, then you start digging into Oklahoma City bombing. And so I've kind of gotten a little bit obsessed. I mean, I still cover other stuff, but that, that's kind of been the thing that's been near and dear. But 
Yeah, I, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Yeah, I guess that kind of answers. It's, that's kind of what you can expect from my show. It's a hodgepodge of libertarian theory. I do a lot of live readings, too. I need to pick yeah. back up on those. Those don't do the best numbers, but they're, I don't know, I like them. <laughs> well, they're, 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 they're really nice for me, who I don't get a lot of time to sit down and read. And so when you and different guests you had while we're doing live readings, it was cool to be able to, because not all these things have audio books out there, or if they do, they don't have like good audio books for them and you guys kind of yeah. read them and then also discuss them, which I think is pretty cool and valuable. And don't undersell the stuff you've done with OKC. I mean, you were, uh, as you <laughs> put on your Twitter bio, you were called heroic by Scott Horton and that's an accolade I am still searching for myself. So, hey man, it's pretty <laughs> impressive. So yeah, let's get into it. You kind of started to dive into it there, the uh, Oklahoma City bombing. And I think this is a really interesting topic because this is something that is right on the cusp, I think, of mainstream and then like our world. People will, if you try talking to them about things like 9-11 or other things where there's sort of like crossover into, I don't know what you want to call it, libertarian conspiracy theory or like truth reporting and things like that. That's something that like people are kind of already aware of and like entrenched in their particular view. But this one I find is especially fascinating. Like the official narrative of the Oklahoma City bombing that like you could look up on Wikipedia basically says that like, hey, this guy, Timothy McVeigh, and his conspirator, Terry Nichols, basically planned this domestic terrorist attack on the anniversary of Waco because they were like anti-government terrorists or white supremacists. Or There's all these sort of labels that get attached to them. And so people act like it's kind of this open and shut case. If you go on like the Wikipedia page, there's like a little section like shoved at the bottom that's like conspiracy theories. And there's like one sentence that says, oh, some people believe that it was like a government attack, a planned attack, and that McVeigh and others were just framed. Terrence Eakey, who you mentioned, is only mentioned once on, I thought that was funny, he's only mentioned once on the Wikipedia Oklahoma City bombing page. And if you click on him, then you can get more of why he's relevant to this story, because it was basically reported that he committed suicide a few, wasn't it like a few days before he was supposed to receive some kind of like award or honors or something? And then it was ruled a suicide officially, even though there's a lot of things that don't add up about it. Like there was no suicide note or anything like that. And he shot himself in the head, but also had like cuts and stuff all over his body. So a little bit strange. Apparently he had been doing, according to people close to him and his ex-wife, he had been doing, from what I can recall, he'd been doing his own investigation into the Oklahoma City bombing because I guess like things weren't quite adding up. So that's kind of like all a person could really know about it when they do like a cursory glance on like Wikipedia or like what's maybe readily available to someone if they're just kind of casually looking into it. But there's obviously a lot more to the story, a lot of conversations and unpacking that you and others have done. So go ahead and kind of start unpacking some of the things that you started to discover don't quite match up with the official narrative regarding OKC and Terrence Eakey's death when you started looking into this. Well, really, you only need to know kind of a little bit of details for Terry to start realizing it doesn't make sense. But yeah, you, you were right that he was shortly about to receive, I believe, like the Medal of Honor or something along those lines. I mean, maybe I got the specific medal wrong, but it was some sort of award for heroism, a heroism in, in relation to the Oklahoma City bombing, because he was one of, I believe he was the first. I mean, obviously, who knows, maybe there was some other person somewhere, but everything I've seen says he was within there like a minute or so, and he's usually credited with being like the first person to show up on the scene, start saving people, uh, ended up injuring himself in the process but it was a year, about a year later that he died. 
and his body was, he was found in a field. He was about a half a mile to a mile and a half, depending, it really depends on what source you go by. Uh, the half mile sources I tend to trust less. The more reputable I think is closer to a mile and a half, but I mean, whatever, even if it's a half mile, it doesn't really make a difference, but his body was found between the half mile and a mile and a half from his car that was parked alongside a road and it was covered in blood. When they found the body, the wrists and throat were cut. There was grass and dirt in the wounds. There was what looked to be either rope burns in slash or cuff bruises on the feet and wrists. And as you said, it was a bullet to the back of the head that was what did him in. At least that's what it seems like. I mean, there was a bull in the head whether they did him in or not. I mean, who knows? But I mean, there was never an autopsy performed, so we don't really know for certain. But I mean, you would just assume bullet to the head. That's probably that probably was the kill shot. But I mean, with that said, it was at an odd angle. I can't remember if it was the left or the right, but it was kind of going at a downward angle from the back of his skull, a little bit tilted off. I think a little bit tilted off to the side. But either way, it's still an awkward angle. You can tell. Terry was a bald guy. I don't know if he was like that bald to the extent that it just didn't grow hair or if he shaved or what. It looks like he probably kept it really, really short. And you would be able to tell. You can tell when it's point blank. The gun is right to the head. You can tell when a gun is fired point blank at someone. You can tell by the marks it leaves on the skin. Yeah. So there was no marks there. So it looks like, it seems to be, that at the very least it wasn't point blank. And I'm not saying it was like he got sniped. I'm saying it was like at least probably a few inches back. So point being is just to kind of think about that logistically, how someone would shoot themselves like that. For one, Terry was a big guy, very big guy, corn-fed kind of dude, tall, I'd say probably in the range of like 250, big guy. And you try to do that. I mean, who for one shoots themselves in the back of the head? Yeah. And even if you're going to do that, I mean, you're going to like, you're not going to do this thing where you're kind of in multiple inches back trying to aim at your head. So that's fishy. And there weren't ballistics that were ever released on the weapon. It's my understanding from talking to people, this is also, I believe, I believe Tanya may have actually said this in the interview, but I've seen it elsewhere, that the gun, there was no gun found until the scene was turned over to the OCPD and the feds that were kind of there as well. That's when the gun showed up because he was actually in a different county from, actually, I may, I don't know if I actually mentioned, I may be getting ahead of myself. I don't know if I mentioned he was a cop before. So he was found a little bit outside of his jurisdiction, his department's jurisdiction in Canadian County is what it was. It was the name of the police department that initially had the crime scene and weren't able to find a gun. And it wasn't until the OCPD took it over that they found a gun, but we don't know what gun. They never did gave any ballistics or said what type of gun, which is a key point because mm. In the most recent CNN article, which I had not seen this elsewhere, maybe this had been elsewhere, but they talked to an individual who had been a source prior, although she is anonymous, so bear that in mind, this individual named Ramona McDonald. And she claimed that Terry was to go to a meeting with some individuals, some Fed types, because he had been looking into the Oklahoma City bombing, something he tipped him off the day of that kind of didn't sit right with him. And he apparently made a point to her that he was not going to bring his gun because he was going to them because he had information he wanted to give to them because he clearly was doing some sort of his own investigation of some sort. And he was trying to find people to trust that can get this information up and do something with it. But he still he wasn't stupid. He knew that this was iffy. So he didn't bring his gun. And obviously the reasoning being so that they couldn't use it on him, because let's be real, if he had brought his gun with him they would have used his own gun against him and then we would have a gun and it would probably be his gun that they used but they didn't make that claim because that's a harder claim to make i guess another point to him actually looking into it 
This was according to Tanya and others, Ramona as well, that he had a nine-page report from the bombing that he wrote from his time there. And that was a big contention he had amongst his leadership where they were not wanting to accept his report and were trying to get him to write another report, something shorter in the range of one page. Obviously, we never got specifics on what they wanted out, what they didn't like about it. But that was a thing he was arguing with his superiors a bunch about. And I have to think if there's anything else specifically in regards to the report. There's something there. But there's a lot of shady stuff there. I could keep on going, but I feel like I'm rambling a little bit. If there's anything else you can think of, let me know. Well, yeah, I think you did a good job explaining why some of the details in terms of how he died don't really seem to add up with the idea of a, of a suicide. I, like I mentioned, there's no suicide note. In terms of like motive for suicide, as far as I can tell, no real strong motive had ever been speculated. Oh, like I, I think people said... Is. I can touch on it, but go ahead. Well, I, like the only thing I had read was like he was separated from his wife and distraught over not being able to save more people from the like the fire and all that, from the bombing and whatnot. But then his ex-wife said that they were, I guess, potentially on the path to reconciliation or something. So I don't know. Was there any possible motive that is there? Or are people kind of grasping at straws in terms of potential motivation for suicide? Even if the... Again, it just seems weird to me. Like, I mean, I guess if you're suicidal, you're not right in the head. But if you're going to commit suicide, it seems like there are easier ways to do it than driving a mile and a half away, somehow ending up all bloody and then getting out into a field and awkwardly shooting yourself in the back of your head. Like it just, I guess it's like one of those things that like, is it possible? Yes. But is it something that just passes the sniff test? Not really. At least not in my opinion. Yeah. On the, I guess it's not even the official narrative because no one really makes this claim anymore. Although, and I don't even know if there was ever really an official, all this was kind of just things that got murmured around and it did end up in some newspapers and stuff that it was implied. It was because of the family breaking up. He had had some sort of domestic dispute that was, I can't remember the specific date of when that occurred, but that happened before the bombing. So keep in mind, it's a year and I believe a few months after the bombing that he died. And so during that period of time, if you listen to Tanya's, I mean, you listen to my current interview that should be out by this time or the previous one, she did a 97 radio interview and she goes into kind of the state of their relationship at the time. And they were interacting a lot and there's people that can corroborate this. But yeah, they were interacting a lot. They were in a friendly place. What they tried to pin it on is, as I referenced with that domestic dispute, many well prior to his death, probably well over a year and a half prior to his death, there was a VPO, I believe, which is essentially like a restraining order. I don't know what the heck the VPO, I forget what VPO stands for. I looked it up once, but I keep forgetting. But it's essentially a restraining order that was put on him by Tanya. And she said in this interview, I believe that the recent interview with me, the reason why was just because when they were going through the divorce, he just wouldn't leave. <laughs> so like, like it's, so he just wouldn't leave the house. So after a while, she kind of did that just to kind of be like, leave. Cause so just to kind of get out of the house, like, yes, she has said there was some domestic stuff, but that wasn't even the reason for the VPO. I believe that's kind of what maybe started the beginning and the end for the divorce. Mm-hmm. But then later the VPO was just to get him out of the house. And, but anyways, that comes back to what they used. That VPO was still active during that period of time. And in my recent interview, Tanya pointed out that should have been thrown out by then, but for some reason it hadn't been. Hmm. But they used that VPO. They claimed that Tanya reported to them. Well, I say they claimed, but now they deny it. I believe it was Major Upchurch is the one who denied it. And he was supposedly the one where that came from. And what I mean by that is apparently there was an actual police report at some point 
that Major Upchurch put out that said that Tanya reported him for breaking his VPO, and as such, they're coming to him with a police officer to come take his badge and a gun and all that, and essentially strip him of being a police officer for that, and that's supposedly what's, what spurned all that. But the kicker is, and this is actually something that came out in the more recent CNN one, so this was kind of assumed before, so it's kind of crazy he's denying it now. Major Upchurch denies that, but... There's another individual, Stephen Vassar, who I've actually had on my show and interviewed him. He claimed that he actually saw that report at one point. He's also, Stephen Vassar, the interesting thing about him is he's also someone who saw John Doe 2, which is a key point of the Oklahoma City bombing. There was something over 20 people who saw before or after on the day of, saw another individual with Timothy McVeigh mm, right. on the day of. So there was another person with him, and there's a lot of people who can corroborate that. But point being is he submitted a report to Stephen Vassar for seeing John Doe 2, and many, many years later, he looked into it and it was gone. And that's not something that's supposed to happen with police reports. So same thing with the major upchurch one disappears. Same thing with also Terry's nine-page one that I believe that should exist somewhere still. That's the way police reports are supposed to work, but that disappeared because that was a big point that he was upset that he never made copies of it, supposedly. I believe that may have been Tanya who said that. But yes, that's kind of, they essentially were implying, it seems to be that the official, unofficial narrative was that it was for breaking that BPO, which Tanya, on my most recent interview, did clarify that and said she did talk to them, but it wasn't for that purpose she was calling because she was concerned because he was mm. acting funny and he was seeming like, he seemed to be concerned that someone was going to kill him or something along those lines. So that's why she contacted him. And she was actually kind of seemed to be pretty distressed about the fact that she did that because she's kind of like clearly that was what they kind of used for precedent for being able to do this or tried to. That was loosely, although they don't even stick to that anymore. So it seems to be it's unraveling at this point. I, I, don't, I don't know what they would even try to say at this point. Yeah, and the incentives would seem to be that if they had such a bad relationship in domestic house life leading to that and the restraining order and all that, like, would she be in this position now where she's defending him and going on interviews and podcasts to talk about trying to set the record straight and not believing that he killed himself? It doesn't really add up. So it feels like more, I don't know, I guess my observation is it feels like it's kind of just obfuscation or even potential character assassination to try to take away any credibility from what he was doing. Let's get into, because I think it's a good background on Geeky himself and kind of the murky details of his death. And you can add more as we go along if there's anything that comes to mind that you think is relevant. Pertaining to the OKC bombing then, what are some of the things in the official narrative that don't seem to add up that I guess we don't really know what Geeky, what his conclusions were, but I guess because we don't have his nine-page report. But what are some of the things in the official narrative that don't add up that people are looking into and that I guess there could be some potential cover up to try to keep people away from the truth. Well, here's one quote for you. There's an individual named Roger Moore. And this is a quote from, this was to Rodney Bowers of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Whatever I was doing for the FBI is effed up So because they blew my cover. This is Roger Moore. And, and he was kind of expressing that he's distressed at the fact that his name was being thrown all over the place and blowing his cover. He was one of the star witnesses for the prosecution against McVeigh, and he also was robbed, quote-unquote, to fund the Oklahoma City bombing. This guy was, he had been on the gun show circuit with McVeigh for a long period of time. It seems like this guy is a glowy. He seems to be almost damn near admitting it here. 
also I would suggest people go check out if you like if his past, I can't even really do it justice explaining his past, but his past, if you look into his past deeds, for example, he's done a lot of crimes that then he never gets prosecuted for, hmm. like trying to sell explosives to someone or something along those lines. He had a boat business that he was selling to shady figures like I believe it was like the Cubans and the like it kind of during a lot of like Fed stuff going on in his past. I believe it was episode three. He glows like no other. And this was the guy that Timothy McVeigh robbed, quote unquote. Right. Because this guy had a boat business, was basically a millionaire, had been going on the gun show circuit for years for a period of time with McVeigh. And so Terry Nichols ended up robbing him, showed up to Roger Moore's house and robbed a ton of his guns and precious metals and stuff like that. I mean, I would assume they're like insured or something along those lines, but it looks like that was a put on that way they could get their funds. And I'm sure he probably, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm actually, you know what I do? There was an insurance guy that showed up. So actually, yes, I forgot that point. So yes, it was. So I'm sure he probably ended up getting insurance money later. I'm not sure whether the insurance money came or not. I know the insurance guy thought it was BS. The cop looking into it thought it was BS. <laughs> it looked like a faked robbery. <laughs> mm. So there's one there, and that guy ends up being the star prosecution against McVeigh and kind of get positioned as a hapless victim of McVeigh. And it looks like he clearly was an accomplice of some sort. And there, there are other accomplices as well that stick out. That one was just an easy one because, you know, just one cursory glance at his past and you realize, oh, this guy's a fed. And also just that <laughs> that quote alone is nuts. Just the, the fact that he was upset, like, at one point, he actually went into the FBI offices, and I think it was in Vegas, I believe, or Nevada, I mean, in that general area. But he went into one of their many offices, and apparently they had been showing his photo to people for the purposes of investigation to the Oklahoma City bombing. And he came and he said, stop showing people my photo. And that was basically kind of like it. And then later there was a memo out where they told him to stop showing his photo. <laughs> so, I mean, what is this guy? I, I don't know specifically. It looks like he has CIA connections if you look into his past. I believe was it the Iran Contra? There seemed to be he was there. There's a lot. There's a lot. <laughs> so, well, that's a, there's a lot of weapons and things to make bombs and materials and things to steal. And it's like if someone has that many possessions, you think that that would not be that easy to pull. Like, it, I mean, a you think it'd be pretty secured. B you think that like the guy would be able to defend his property in some fashion. Yeah. So yeah, it is. It, it again, it's one of those things that like when you think about it, kind of like. I don't know if that really passes the sniff test. <laughs> yeah, I believe, I think it was Boltzmann Booty, who's a it's silly name, but he, that's his name on Twitter. He's a big, big research name. I believe he did a Scott Horton episode where he went really in depth into the robbery. And if I remember correctly, I believe the guns were literally like set out by the front door. <laughs> <laughs> so, and Nichols even later made comments that implied that I believe he said McVeigh said something along the lines to him that it'll be easy, like he won't put up any fight. I don't think he explicitly said that it was a put on, but that seemed to be how Nichols interpreted it, that it was like, okay, we're just kind of running through the motions here. <laughs> and, and that's how it ended up working out. Yeah, I, I recommend people go check that out because uh, Boltzmann went on a deep dive on that one. But yeah, on Roger Moore and the uh, robbery in general. <laughs> but yeah, Roger Moore is a spooky character. He glows like the sun. <laughs> right. So that's one aspect of it, I guess. And then were you saying Moore was supposed to be testifying, I guess, to the effect that he was robbed. Did he end up testifying or? Oh, yeah. He, no, he testified. He okay. I mean, I don't know if he, 
I'm assuming he took the stand. I don't know the specifics on at what points and if he yeah. specifically took the stand or if they only used like statements from him or yeah. I was or wondering if he actually I, was like yeah. I was wondering if he actually just gave statements or if he actually got like put to the stand. Yeah, I think to, he like, actually took the stand. There's okay. literally a photo of him on the stand. I mean, I don't know the nitnoid details of what he did in the trial and stuff, but I'm, I'm almost certain he took the stand at some point. So right. So moving on, so like that's how they got the materials to I guess execute their attack. That's part of it, yes. That's part of it, yeah. Is there anything else that comes up between the supposed robbery and the attack itself? And then what's the alternative theories as to if there are any in terms of why the bombing was happened or ways in which the government or other people might have been involved in making this happen, why they wanted it to happen? Because I think that's what people are probably going to be wondering is like, okay, if there's a conspiracy, like what's the motive and who would be behind it? All right, well, there's levels to this. Right. I'll be honest, I'm stealing a little bit from Wendy Painting here, although, I mean, it'd be hard not to. In her book, Operation the Heartland of Real, The Secret Lives of Timothy McVeigh, in that, one of the chapters, she goes into the different narratives, narrative types, and the beginning level usually is Lone Wolf, which is what the official understanding is of the Oklahoma City bombing. This is any establishment types, this is what they will parrot that he was the lone wolf. And when I say lone wolf, I don't mean literally lone wolf because I already mentioned Terry Nichols sometimes. Terry Nichols got tried as well. He's currently in a supermax prison right now. Obviously, Timmy McVeigh got the death penalty. But there's the lone wolf, and that's, yes, that's basically, Timmy McVeigh basically did it by himself, although it's kind of like a little asterisk with a little bit of help from Terry Nichols. Like just a minor, just minor stuff here and there is kind of what they're implying. And that's it. I mean, they, they do imply, I believe, in the official that Michael Fortier did as well and other individual. But that's kind of basically just McVeigh. McVeigh was the one who drove up with the bomb. He set it off. The other people just kind of helped him out with little odds and here. I think Fortier is more implied. They just kind of like maybe gave him a little bit of help here and there with kind of like the putting together or getting some stuff together and then kind of putting the bomb together, stuff like that. But for the most part, Timmy McVeigh, pretty much all his own thing. And that one is... Nonsensical. It doesn't take much looking to realize that there's, at the very least, there's at least other accomplices, even just John Doe 2, just right. right off the bat. Like I said, it's over 20 people saw him. I believe it was like literally every every eyewitness. And, and didn't they like had hunt, it, saw him with somebody else? Weren't they like searching for, I'm trying to remember this, weren't they searching for John Doe number two? And then later they tried to like hush on that, like oh, there was no John Doe number two. Like, yeah, 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 that's the thing. It literally, within I believe a course of like two, three months, it became, oh, no, our official stance is John Doe 2 doesn't exist. Actually, the timeline is April, obviously, the bomb occurs April 19th, 1995. And then in May, there was a memo sent out, the FBI sent out a memo, was to put all leads on John Doe 2 into abeyance, which abeyance is just, I guess, a legal term of some sort, or maybe not necessarily a legal term, but like a criminal justice term or something along those lines to where it essentially just means just kind of don't pursue them is basically what it means. Just kind of don't worry about those. But during that period of time, they still were kind of giving lip service to the fact they're going into it. And then come June is when they actually officially kind of came out and were like, yeah, we don't. I think they were essentially saying that the witnesses like kind of just misidentified or misremembered or something along those lines. And that was became the official stance. Although that even during that period of time, they're kind of playing up both sides of their mouth where they're kind of like would say, oh, well, we're kind of looking into it. But, you know, they weren't. And as time went on, it became more and more cemented that, no, John Doe 2 didn't happen. That wasn't a thing. <laughs> Although that's probably one of the most cemented things that that's usually the go-to for people when it comes to local estate bombing. Because it's the easiest one. Because it's like, especially when you look into the trial and see how this played out, 
basically every single eyewitness saw him with someone else. And then none of those people end up actually coming to trial, the main trial. I forget the name of it. They're like the pre-trial thing. They use, I think the arraignment, I believe it's called. They used them mm-hmm. to kind of cement Timmy Vey as actually being the guy. But then when it came to trial, which I assume maybe, I mean, I'm not a lawyer or anything, but I'm assuming the trial is a little bit more extensive. You're going to have people in the stands, stuff like that. And then it's you can't control the information as well. But in the arraignment or whatever the hell was prior to the actual trial, that is when they'll use them to be able to establish him as being there. And then later they don't bring him in. And then they just start using people like Roger Moore. They even used Michael Fortier to kind of flip him against McVeigh. And then they just never brought in any of those other people to prove it. Although they did have a agent named John Hursley on the stand and said they saw two people. So that is actually in the record. I believe what they say, they were talking about the people in the truck and they said, I believe, the occupants or, or, or passenger, or they essentially use the word in plural. And the defense goes, so excuse me, did you, did you say uh, plural? And, and then that's when Merrick Garland actually, or uh, is he still our current AG? Uh, I don't remember if he's still our current AG or not. I think he is. But Merrick Garland, he was actually the one running the show at that period of time. He threw up an objection and I don't mean, and the, the judge overruled it and actually allowed the defense to ask the question. And John Hursley clarified that, yes, I saw another individual. In, there, were, there were multiple individuals. McVeigh was driving, and there was an individual on the passenger, passenger side. So that is official on the record. Also, it is fishy. Why is Merrick Garland raising the objection about that? Like, aren't you trying to get these people to justice? Like, that's supposed to be what he was there for. He, <laughs> But, yeah, where were we at? <laughs> oh, yeah, we're talking narratives. And then after the lone wolf, then you can kind of get to, there's differing levels. I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to kind of use Lone Wolf's probably going to be the mostly the point, one of the only things I'll use from Wendy. But, and then it, I see it as different levels is like, and then we can prove is there a cover up and why is there a cover up? I guess the differing levels in my head is like, yes, you have the Lone Wolf. And then after that, I, I see like, is there a, was there a cover up? Why was there a cover up? Mm-hmm. I think it's very, very, it's it's 100% certain if you look at, you look at this, even if you dispute, even if you take kind of like a more official stance of some sort, and you, you look at these facts objectively, you'll see there clearly was some cover-ups along the way. They very clearly were hiding information. And then you, you get to a higher level, like, well, what was it? I th- Was it a sting of some sort? I think that's fairly, pr- I guess, provable. I'm, I'm like 100, like, that's pretty likely that it was some sort of sting of some sort that may have gone wrong. Now, how? Who? I don't know. There's there's various different ways. That's actually when I brought on Vassar. He was he retired as a cop, and he he said that that's how it looked like to him is that there was some sort of sting gone wrong of some sort because he said during his time as a cop he'd seen many undercover operations and he's seen stings gone wrong. So things like this happen. This is the dangerous game you play as the FBI when you build up these domestic terrorists and then set them up for these stings and hey, things don't always go the way you want them to. Sometimes you end up actually legitimately committing crimes. And then there's the next level, the final level, which is like, was this some sort of black ops, like CIA, like we're, or whatever agency you want to apply? Was this some sort of like Northwoods or Operation Gladio type thing? Was this like a government or some sort of shadowy agency perpetrating violence intentionally on the American people? And personally, I lean towards that. I mean, that's a little bit longer of discussion to see, to point that out. And I will admit a lot of that just relies on odd individuals that are there, a lot of pattern recognition. So that's not something I could prove. 
really, but I, I think when you really start to dig into it, it becomes a very strong possibility. Uh, you, you see why some of the individuals involved in some of their past, and you're like, oh, I mean, th- th- that, that takes probably a, a little bit of like, that probably takes like a 10, 15 minute bit of exposition to get to the point where you're like, oh, okay, I get where you're coming from. You don't sound like a crazy person. But at the very least, I usually try to hang around, around like cover up or sting spot. And then, but if someone really wants to be like, okay, do you, do you want to go into why you think the CIA did it? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> but, but yes, that, that's, that's, and then I guess another little one I can throw in there. This is from Wendy as well is the guilty agent. Cause even with the black ops doing it against us, that doesn't mean McVeigh was in on it. I mean, who knows? They could have manipulated him. Mm. Uh, the guilty agent narrative is that McVeigh himself was actually working for him. And I kind of skimmed through there's I didn't really go into all of what Wendy's, I just used the two, the guilty agent and lone wolf kind of simplified it a little bit more for myself uh, or for your audience. But yeah, that's kind of the way I see, I, I picture it in my head. I'm like, kind of like cover up sting, like Gladio is what a lot of people call it, which is essentially governments committing violence against their own people to be able to justify expanding their power. Right. <laughs> so, well, I mean, after this, yeah. they literally passed multiple acts of, of uh, legislation aimed at anti-terrorism and increasing yep. the, the government's ability to use the death penalty and increase protection around federal buildings and things like that. So, I mean, like you said, it, it's one of those yeah. things that's like, and this is, I hope after this people go and check out your work because it's like there's there's only so much we can do in a an, an hour-ish podcast to, to dive into all this. But the fact that this is connecting back to Terrence Geeky, it's like, okay, like, was that a suicide or was he asking questions that, asking the wrong questions that some people got whiff of and they decided to do something about it. And why wouldn't they accept his nine-page report? Why do they want it to be one page? Was there information in there that didn't line up with the narrative that they're trying to sell and things that they're trying to cover up? And again, that's to those who, I guess, aren't of maybe our mindset, it it might sound conspiracy theory, but like, I don't know. I think we talked about this last time. Like, what what does conspiracy theory even mean? Like, conspiracy is just people doing things, people planning to do things. So it's like, I mean, I think that's kind of a, inspired a, to do this podcast. Right, exactly. So <laughs> so it's like there there is a truth to the matter and if the if it's not a it's not a illegitimate thing and just labeling it as a conspiracy theory doesn't make it any less true or not true to be like, well, I'm looking at the facts and I think that they, my hypothesis is here's a here are a few explanations that make sense of the facts. The the explanation of Timothy McVeigh was acting completely alone and Terrence Ike killed himself, those don't seem like the best explanations for the facts we have on the ground. And I, I think at the very least, even if people aren't going to go the whole way to, oh, it was definitely this like deep state plan to increase their power, maybe it, maybe it could have just been, like you said, a botched sting of some sort mm-hmm. or, or something like that. Like, sure, that's possible. I'm not sure that's, that's, that, that still means that there was a cover-up though. That still means that that, that still exposes some element of our intelligence agencies and, and law enforcement and things like that that aren't acting in the supposed role of protector and keeper of of, of justice and stuff that they're supposed to be acting in. So st- stories like this, I think, help to... And, and, and you know, this was, what, 1995? And then they passed legislation in 96 and stuff. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that happened in this decade and then leading up to 9-11. So it's like, I think sometimes people... Curious your thoughts on this. This was the 9-11 before 9-11. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like yeah. I think some people like look at 9-11 and especially like people maybe 
more like my age in my generation. Like I'm 31. So like I was a kid when a lot of this happened. So I, I didn't really pay much attention to it. 9-11 happened and you're like, oh, wow, like this happened in a vacuum. And then you go mm-hmm. back and read about like, you, you, th- you read about Waco, you read about the, the first World Trade Center bombing, you read about the Oklahoma City bombing and stuff. You're like, there was a lot of <laughs> interesting events in the 90s leading up to 9-11 that sort of slowly escalated and built up the sort of like surveillance state, sort of like intelligence apparatus that we have now. And again, is it, I, I don't think it's, tinfoil hat area to just look at that and recognize that there's there's some patterns to what's going on here, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had, like I said, OKC was a 9-11 before 9-11. Then we had 9-11. Now we have the June 9-11 now. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Yes, I, I think people need to, to look into the Oklahoma City bombing. I think it, it is pertinent to today. And I think we're at a point where I think the narrative is falling apart for it. So I think it is it is a something worth looking into. I think I, I think the time is ripe because you know how these big events are. And I think as when, when we have things like, I don't know, I mentioned Northwoods before. I don't know the period in time in which those things became declassified. But I think every now and then we have these huge events. I guess maybe Northwoods isn't the best example, but something like the USS Liberty or, or something along those lines, some sort of large event yeah. happens. And then decades later, we find out the truth, usually through some sort of declassification or, or something. I mean, usually I think what ends up happening is how this works is people behind or people are pushing for truth. And over time, the, just the, the narrative crumbles to the point where they have to sort of, and it will usually kind of do what's called limited hangouts for a period of time and kind of slowly bring it closer to the actual narrative or an obfuscate like what really is the key points. And, but eventually we usually get something approximating the truth. But by the time that comes out, no one cares. But I think in our modern state of technology, social media, the way information is, information is moving so much quicker than it used to. So I think that timetable has been sped up. And I, I think the time, I think there's something unique about the time when the Oklahoma City bombing happening where we were in the burgeoning time of like internet and stuff like that. But we didn't have it to the extent like we have now. But my point being is we we had things that were like documented out there, whether it be video, this, that, and the other thing. And then, but now we're getting to the point where this thing is getting disseminated. And I, I think my point I'm getting is I think that, like I said, the timetables are shortening for these. And I think we're we're basically at that timetable for the Oklahoma City bombing. So I think it's kind of like this is an opportunity to push to really kind of get eyes on this sort of stuff, keep talking about these sort of things keep it moving because I think we're they're at a point where this can crumble. And if we can get these timetables shortened and shortened and shortened and shortened, then it gets to the point to where the, they're basically useless. I did want to talk about real quick, kind of sort of the CIA black op things I was in, referring to. And I'm not going to do the whole 10, 15 minute exposition, but as I mentioned with Northwoods, there were other things. I mentioned Gladio a couple times. Gladio is something that happened over in kind of like Italy and some of those other nations in that kind of area where they were, the government, and this is, I don't know if it was ever declassified stuff, but basically anyone who's really looked into parapolitics is basically kind of like common knowledge at this point that this is a thing that happened. But yeah, they were essentially, I believe it was the commies in this situation. Uh, they were essentially creating, they were essentially performing, what's the word I'm looking for? They were, the the security agencies in those in those theaters were performing gl- gladio or, or violence against their own, those, the people there 
but making it look like it was other people so that they could justify more of the security agency and demonize the the groups that they want to. The same thing also happened in Vietnam with Operation Phoenix, where they were doing they were doing shootings, bombings, assassinations to make it look like the Viet Cong was doing it, when in reality it was the CIA and trying to make the Viet Cong look bad. So the point being is like it these like it sounds crazy, but there is you know historical precedent for that, and that's. And like I mentioned, Northwoods, <laughs> which a lot of people don't realize that the guy who headed that up, I believe his name is Lem- Lemnitzer, Lemnitzer or Lemnitzer or whatever. He he ended up getting, he ended up moving, I believe it was the UN and kind of presided. It seems to be, obviously, I don't think we can get a confirmation, but he was in the prime area where he likely would have been kind of heading up Gladio <laughs> in some shape or form. So the guy who did Northwoods ended up going over to going over to Europe and kind of seemed to be playing a part in Gladio. So like we think of Northwoods and we're like, oh my God, and don't be wrong, that's bad enough, but that it's actually been done in other countries. So like, and I mean, for all I know, it's probably been done. And I mean, I'm of the opinion, it likely probably has been done here, whether it was called Northwoods or something else is kind of beside the point. It's either way, either way, it's the same thing. So point, point being is like, there's precedent for this kind of stuff. It's not as crazy as it sounds. But obviously, that's something that you're going to have to wait decades before any government's going to admit to that. Probably like half a century before any decade, before any government's going to admit to any sort of intentional <laughs> killing of its own people in that manner. So. Right. But I think things like what happened with Epstein, I think, started to awaken more of the, I know, what I would call like the normie population up to the idea that, like, oh, okay, yeah, but you know, people can be falsely framed as taking their own life and like that one was like almost like two like they they overplayed their hand there a little bit it was like uh but but like that's not the only incident it's just now like you were mentioning with technology and the internet and tv and stuff it's like this stuff's a little bit easier to see through if you're paying attention you know one one thing we forgot to mention yiki isn't the only person who supposedly offed himself in pertaining to this whole okc thing because you've also after you went on Tim Cast and talked about Tarantino not killing himself, you, you you then went on to talk about how Kenneth, what's it uh, trying to do? Trying to do. Uh, yep. Also, same thing. He's a he was he was he, he was uh, accused of being hung in his cell, right? Like he hung himself mm-hmm. in his cell, but didn't try and remember this from memory. I think the person who like the the chief medical medical investigator, I think, said it was very likely that he was murdered. Um, yeah. Or something like that. I'm trying to remember the exact. It's not Jim Jordan, something Jordan, <laughs> but I always think Jim Jordan because I forget his name. But yes, you're right. The, uh, the the he did he did he raised some serious stink. The key point, the one of the things with him too later is he ended up kind of kind of backing down from his position, although it seems like under heavy coercion. I mean, right. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but he was a hero for a while, pushed it. But I mean, that's like when then, that's I, like when the, the, the wife shows up with the, the menacing boyfriend's arm around her shoulder and she's like, No, I was wrong. I fell down the stairs. Like yeah, yeah like that <laughs> don't know if I believe you. Uh yeah. things don't quite add up there. I mean so so yeah, I mean I think I hope that people listening to this will check out more of what you've talked about on your show, the interviews you've did on this. Because yeah, I think it, 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 I mean, to me, I think people, I think like my, the normies I interact with, I, I think they cringe at this stuff because they feel like, what are you trying to do? You get me to, trying to get me to lose faith in our institutions? Like that's scary. And I'm like, okay, I can kind of, I'm curious what your experience was. Like, I remember when I kind of first started waking up to this stuff back in like 2018. And I remember like, one day, like I, everything I'd been looking into in terms of 
government conspiracies and like libertarian anarchist literature, like everything kind of like clicked all at once for me. And I remember kind of having like a few days of kind of like existential dread, like, oh, I was raised in a complete lie. And like, this is a house of cards. And and it, it, yeah, I kind of felt like, I don't know, unsafe because like my worldview had been unraveled. But I don't know. I, I feel like on the flip side, it's like to use the Matrix movie as a, as a, a reference point because that movie is... I think a, a very good allegory for this. It's like, I mean, you have to choose if you'd rather live in reality or live in a simulation. And are you safe in the simulation? Like, I don't know. Like, I guess kind of, but at the same time, like the difference between that movie and reality is like this simulation is actually in more danger of collapsing in on itself. And so we have a choice of as, as people, as you and I are both fathers and stuff that have families to look out for. It's like, you know what? I'm actually safer now, I think, for looking into these things, for having a distrust of these institutions because I realize they're not going to bail me out. Like, if anything, they're going to mm. do the opposite. And I need to realize that, I mean, obviously I'm a Christian, so I, I have faith in God to, to protect me and provide for me. But like, other than that, like, it falls on me. It falls on me in establishing connections in my community, establishing connections with other people in this libertarian community that we're a part of, establishing roots in my church and taking responsibility for my own safety and my family's safety and well-being rather than trusting these corrupt institutions. Like, I, I, that's the way I kind of look at it. So, but I understand some people, it's like, I, I think they they see this stuff and they turn a blind eye, not because they aren't intelligent enough to understand what we're talking about, but there's this like deep uncomfortability I think a lot of people aren't able to overcome when it comes to like, really swallowing that that red pill of just how deep this rabbit hole goes, so to speak. Yeah, it is a hard, somewhat a hard realization. And even then, I think for a lot of like libertarians or people who there, there is a certain like, yeah, you can still just be and I, I used to talk about agorism a lot. And this is kind of the key point is like once you start, once you realize how to put it in action, that's when it really really matters because you can be a libertarian walking around with the generally theoretical, the right ideas. But what, what are you doing? Because I mean, you were talking about having a realization. I was active duty military for 11 years and I had my realization while I was in. And that's, that's a hard one. Cause then you're like, especially like there's a period of time where I was that libertarian just from theory and stuff, where I was just kind of like, Oh, this is what I think. But then still kind of like doing that. And over time you just realize like, Oh, like there's actual reasons why I shouldn't be doing this even like in a self-interest type way. And then once you can start, and then once you start understanding things like economics, once you start understanding things like time preference, like, I don't know if it's a function of me being a father, understanding time preference. Like I'm thinking like generations, like what, what can I, what, how can I provide, like what, yeah. what will I have to offer my grandchildren and, and great grandchildren? And can I set them off in, in a better place? And, and being in a spot of being dependent on the state or, or, or even a corporation just trying to get that pension or whatever, I think is the wrong way to look at it. Especially once you realize that like most mortgages are like 30 years. So let's like, by the time you even get to retirement, your mortgages might be paid off anyway. So it's like, and that, I mean, most people, if you have a mortgage paid off, it's like, you don't have to work that hard. <laughs> so, like, so it's like, you're working your whole life for a pension. And by that point, you'll probably either almost have your mortgage paid off or be paid off. And then you'll just have this extra money that you kind of, you don't really need that much. Like, I don't know, once you start getting a clear grasp of these things and understanding economics, time preference, 
you start to realize like, oh, I, I think I may need to change things. And, and that goes for anyone. I think everyone can change something. And I'm still shifting my life around, making it better, making big changes here and there to try to set myself better up for the future as opposed to being dependent on some large corporation or government or whatever having a more realistic view of things and how economics works and how this is going to play out in the long run. But yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. As we're coming to a close here, although it's a kind of a, a completely different topic, but not that, I mean, it's, it's along the same theme, what we're talking about here. I did want to ask you about your thoughts on what's going on on the, on the global stage a little bit with what's going on in, in, uh, in Israel and stuff. And, and I don't know, what, you, what you've been noticing in terms of the the national and, and international discourse along there, my my experience, and I'm, I'm curious to get your response, see if it mat- if what you've noticed matches up with what I've noticed, is that although on one hand it was disappointing a little bit to see a lot of people on the right, including my milieu, the you know evangelical Christians, go in, into abandoning their sort of semi principled opposition of the U.S. funding of the war in Ukraine and things like that to kind of like, oh, well, it's Israel. So obviously we're all on Tim Israel. People like Nikki Haley being like, give Israel whatever they want. No questions asked. Lindsey Graham, just level Gaza and things like that. Like that happened right away and I cringed. But now I'm seeing like more than I really anticipated a lot of people asking questions or even being critical of that sort of like usual response. I mean, today I was like, watching Candace Owens just like go off on like this, like, why are we supporting Israel? And she actually shared like a, a, a Bible passage about Jesus claiming that like, blessed are the peacemakers and all that. And, and just like riling all these people up. And of course it's controversial because she works for the Daily Wire, which is run by Ben Shapiro, the, the chief Zionist war hawk. And, and yeah, and I'm, I'm noticing this more even just like in my own local interactions like in my church and and people I know and they know I'm a libertarian with a podcast and people are asking me questions about that and when I start to go into some of the history and stuff but instead of like getting people who are closed off to it I'm noticing people are kind of more like open to the idea like they're starting to like connect the dots like okay we know our government lies to us yeah we know that our democracy doesn't always work that well because people are like, well, didn't didn't the Palestinians elect Hamas? I'm like, yeah, I mean, kind of like elect. Like, I mean, did you guys did you elect years ago? Yeah, like yeah, it's like yeah, exactly. And it's like, and even if it happened two years ago, it's like, did you elect Joe Biden? Anyway, yeah. I'm I'm starting to notice that although the immediate response was kind of NPC, I'm starting to notice some people are on the right are becoming more awake, at least willing to question the narrative than, than I was anticipating. And I find that to be incredibly encouraging. If you noticed the same thing at all, and I don't know what your interactions have been. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. I mean, I do think our, our perception is a little bit distorted because anytime you look at like any of the, like the, the, the infographics on like the global sentiment, it is really like a United States is like, and Israel are the only ones that are like, go True. Israel. And right, everyone yeah. else is like, what uh, well, is going on? <laughs> right. But I have noticed there are dissenting voices, particularly among the right that are rising up. I mean, I will admit, but I know th- this still, it is hard when you see people like Obama or I don't know, some other people I can think of, or I guess AOC or some of the other, like, I guess AOC is not as good of an example. Obama was like probably the prime example, like coming out and like saying like basically the right borderline, the right things, maybe not like perfect to the extent I want them, but basically the right things on this. And you're like, Jesus, 
Like, why? God. What? Like, <laughs> like I, I don't know. Like, like you're like, I mean, I guess that's good. But you're like. Even I, Joe you know, Biden like, had a good, like, <laughs> one-liner at one point. He was like, listen, here in our, my country, after our 9-11, we went, we went overboard and, and we're overzealous in our response. And you guys need to be careful not to do that. And I was like, did he almost make a good point there? Like, what's happening? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. And you're, so it is like, I mean, there are definitely a lot of like lefties and establishment figures. I'm like, geez, like, I mean, geez, I saw Mark Ruffalo putting out like some good stuff recently. Like, God, like, like well, the weird bedfellows I find himself in. But then you have these stupid... The, the idiots on the right that then point that this out as if this is like a damning point. You're like, okay, okay like, yeah, they got something right. Like, cool. Right, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like, that, like, I don't know. I'm not theoretically against everything they're for. And like, but yes, it is. But at the end of the day, like this whole, this whole thing is like the most complicated, uncomplicated thing. And the, the beauty of understanding like the, the concept of private property and the consequences of not adhering to it, it really... <laughs> It really is that simple. Like once you understand, like, hey, the, the essentially Israel or not even Israel was it the Brits? I think bought a bunch of land and then gave it to Israel. Uh, but they bought that land while there were people occupants on it. Which you know, in whatever, if we want to, I mean, obviously we both have issues with states in general. But if we're going to accept states and they're going to try to adhere to a private property system, the the correct thing for them to do when they they took over that area would be to then operate under a private property system and not kick out the people who are already there already have deeds their houses already are able to show ownership but no that's not what happened they, they, they these people got run out the nakba what 1948 many yeah. other expansions and at the end of the day like they these are people that owned property that then you aggressed against them and that causes problems but then the problem is then this becomes a stupid, like stupid, stupid talking point about like, well, should we just give the Indians back their land? And you're like, okay, well, first that's a, that's a, like, like it's just not understanding property, like private property. Cause it's like, okay, I forget the specifics. I'm not even like, it's been a while since I've done my reading on like how like a reparations work, but there is something to like generations and like, cause I mean, obviously theoretically, like if my dad died and he was in possession of property, even if he didn't have a will, or even if he expressed that I'm the one he wanted to get, then it should go to me. Like that's a concept right. of uh, private property. So you can almost infer generally, but we're in a situation here where we're talking one generation, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, so 19, like there are people still alive from 1948. So there are right. people still alive that would have the keys or deeds to their house that don't have it anymore. And like, this is, if you've anyone's read Hoppe, like when these aggressions are de-civilizing forces. So you're yeah. literally like, cr literally cr taking civilization and taking it downward. So this is, this is what the cause of aggressing. Like you're all, you don't improve the, the, the situation. Like this isn't a civilizing force, it's a de-civilizing force. And the only way this can be rectified is by rectifying it by going through the proper and then people people have this silly ideas because they're so stuck in the conception of states yeah. that then they go well should it be palestine and like i don't i don't care, care. what it's called I just want people's <laughs> rights to be respected you know what i mean it's like yeah you? like it could be israel i don't care but then israel in my opinion israel should go should have some sort of court system where they go through and say hey bring your like bring, come here with your your claims uh, your private property claims that you like that, and we'll we'll mediate them or whatever legal process we need to go to. We'll verify that this is actually your land, and we'll 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 figure out a way to get back. And then it's just I don't know. There, there, it, it is really dumb. But like with the Indian example, it's like okay, but this 
good luck tracking a, pro- a, yeah. a property ownership that many generations back. We're talking one generation. And if you could so yes, on individual levels, yeah. then make the case. But like, like, like sure. <laughs> but if you can't, then it's not as, you're right, it's not as recent. It's not as congruent. Yeah. Uh, and even then when people are saying that, they're meaning should this become Indian land? I'm like, no. <laughs> right. Even then, it's not, not how to that mention, works. Like, like, <laughs> not to mention, like, you don't, rest- you, you don't, it's not proper restitution to violate the property rights of people now to rectify the violation of property rights 200 years ago or 100 years ago. Like, that that yeah. doesn't work out, right? So let's say the courts came to a conclusion like, oh, okay, this property here belonged to someone 20 years ago. Now there's a whole bunch of people there or things have been changed. Okay, well, like, we still ought to find some way to, like, those who harmed them have to come up with some restitution or something, right? Like, yeah. so it might not be perfect, but, like, some attempt should be made. Um, yeah. something that- I, I do want to clarify one point, though, because I think a lot of people don't understand this. When it comes to private property, like, say I steal from you and then I sell that item to another individual. That doesn't confer private, that doesn't confer property ownership to the other individual. Now, if you never make the claim, like if you never try to get your property back in any way, shape, or form, the person who has the best claim at that given point is the person I sold it to. Until someone comes along with proof that they had originally had the, the, the ownership and it got unjustly taken away from them. Now, in that case, theoretically, like if I steal an apple from you and give to Bob, then theoretically, Bob has to give the apple back to you. Now, we get into deeper libertarian theory at that point of like, okay, but now does Bob owe, do I owe Bob money because I sold him something fraudulently? Right. Sure. Yeah. I mean, probably. I mean, I, got, I definitely got to give him back his money because I also essentially stole his money through fraud. So, yes, it is. So, people might look at this as like unjust because they're like, oh, well, there could be some Israeli that's living in this house that the point had is like nothing to do with the Nakba like, like, or whatever. But it's like, they're, they're also, they essentially got, if assuming they had no part in this, they were they were defrauded as well. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, there might not be perfect justice achieved, but the point is like an attempt at something could be achieved and it's not being done. And listen, like you mentioned before, like, well, should we call it Palestine? Or like, like listen, I don't care if it's called Israel. But, and people, will, what I'm trying to get at is people will often point to, well, listen, there are, what, 20% Muslim Arab population living in Israel already. I'm like, all right, well, then just make Gaza part of Israel and say, hey, guess what? You all have equal rights as Israeli citizens now. And then it's like, okay, that's fine. I'm like, yeah, but you know, they're never going to do that, right? Like, why won't they do that? I was like, because it would throw off the, 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 uh, the Jewish majority in, in the government. Which is the stated goal of why they don't why why they don't want to give them equal rights and why they oppose a, a two state solution. And it's like we have the receipts now. It's easier than ever to go back and show things that people in the Israeli government has said. We could even go back in history and see. What's funny? It's like people on Twitter will be like, if you use terms like Zionist lobby or like Jewish lobby or something like that, like that's anti Semitic. And I'm just like. You can literally go back to like the 1920s and see like the Brits and and stuff talking about about the Jewish lobby and the and the, and the international coalition of 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 a uh, of Jewish influence and things like that. And you can also see the stated goals of some of the most prominent Zionists saying, "Hey, we don't care about the rights of the Arabs living on this land. Our goal is to go there and take it because we believe it's our we have a God-given right to this land or something." So it's like, listen, it's like, listen, and I keep telling people if they haven't to go listen to the Martyr Made podcast by Daryl Brooks because it's an amazing breakdown of his history. Like, listen, I'm I'm Jewish. I mean, I'm, I'm religiously Christian, but I'm like oh, culturally, sure. ethnically Jewish. Yeah, oh, I'm I know. Sorry for <laughs> <that you guess. laughs> um, and listen, I, I grew up in the propaganda of Zionism, and, and I I 
when I read about things like the pogroms and stuff happening in Russia, things that happened in France and stuff, like, listen, I get it. Like, I'm not saying anti-Semitism wasn't a thing. I'm not, Whoa, what do you mean by I get it? <laughs> I mean, like, you know, what, what I mean is, like, I get in the, and this is what uh, yeah. Daryl uh, Cooper talks about in his podcast. Like, listen, like, this was a different time 100 years ago. Like, really, like, 150 years ago is when the Zionist movement started. And we can, like, understand what motivated these people and say, yeah, some horrible things happened to them. But what I just hate as a Jewish person is that when, you, when people say never again, but they're willing to do, a, like, you don't actually mean that because you are doing that again just to a different group of people. So it, it's completely us. hypocritical. Yeah. They will literally use the Holocaust to, ju- the, they will usually literally use a genocide to try to justify a genocide. So, I mean, whether you want to call it a genocide or not, they will use a b- killing of a bunch of people to justify a killing a bunch of people. I mean, y- you can use whatever terms you want. I mean, genocide is just killing a bunch of people. But in the end of the day, like the scale really makes no difference. If innocents are killed and you in turn kill innocents, it's like we just keep this cycle going round and round and round. And I mean, I don't know, people have this idea that it's like, oh, at least we're doing something. And it's like, I, I don't know, if you, you apply this thought process a little bit deeper, what are the results? Like, yeah, sure, maybe you'll get some immediate results of some sort, but it's not going to work out in the long run. And I, I actually think this is not going to end well for Israel, I think. I mean, I'm not saying they're going to, it's going to happen again, but <laughs> like I'm saying, like, I think the public outcry for this, I think the the eyes have opened, I think they overplayed their hand. I do think this kind of plays into the kind of what we were talking about with the the people who've actually kind of dissented from the the right and kind of have come out and I think they've you know actually done well and we've gone to a point to where this anti-Semitism claim had holds no no sway like no like Nothing. oh I'm anti-Semitism. Did, did, did you see care. on Twitter today that just saying Christ is Lord or Christ is King was being labeled as anti-Semitic? I was like, whatever, who cares? I, I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, like, I don't care. Like it's to me, it's just silly. Like the, being called an, and I've always thought this my entire life. Like I know, like people joke. Like I, I mean, obviously, in Power Tower Gang, we joke around about like the Jews and like make a lot of Jew jokes. But if anything, part of why it's so fun, like that kind of stuff, is funny to me, is because it's so ridiculous. Right, the it's idea, the same as making genuinely, fun of the woke stuff. Yeah. It's, it's the same. Yeah. It's the well, same no, thing. No, it's, my point being is just that, like, I don't, I can't, like, like genuinely hating Jews. Like, okay, like maybe like I could, and especially because Jew is such a nebulous term. Like, what does it even mean? True. Like, do you mean someone from Israel? Do you mean someone who believes in Judaism? Do you mean someone who's a cultural Jew? It's like really every one of those. I'm kind of like, I don't know, maybe, maybe the hyper, like there, I've seen some things and obviously there's probably different sects of Judaism, but there's definitely some sects and I'm like, whoa, that is wild. Uh, And so they're, they're like, so even then I might, I might, I mean, I don't think I'd say I hate them, but I would probably say I hate their beliefs in that in that whatever sect because i've definitely seen i watched a whole two-hour video where some rabbi was using the torah to justify all of this and it was it was dark like dark stuff like it brought it back to like jacob and uh, ishmael type stuff to like well it's because they're of his people and they're going to always hate our people and the bible says this and this is why we must kill them we must dash their children's heads against the rocks because they dash our children's heads against rocks and you're like jesus man (laughs) yeah they they hate us because of something that happened three or four thousand years ago according to the bible not because we kicked them off their land and and dropped bombs on them that has nothing to do with it yeah it's just it's it's so silly and i listen like you talked about judaism what what people don't want to talk about is that there's actually a I wouldn't say it's the majority, but probably a ten to twenty percent contingent of 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 Jewish people who are anti-Zionists, 
who mm-hmm. and, and and are so on re, on on religiously Jewish grounds because they were like, yeah. uh, no, we weren't supposed can't to say I hate Jews when I love Jews. I hate Jews. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's convoluted. Gosh. But yeah, it, it's silly, and and it's like the the whole. Calling someone an anti-Semite is just like calling someone a bigot or a racist or a, a transphobe. It's the same thing, and it's it, but it's especially funny when you see people like Ben Shapiro who who make their living off of like going on college campuses and owning trans people with green hair, talking about sixty-two genders, and he'll make fun of their he'll bash identity politics when it comes to that stuff. But when it comes to protecting what is by definition, basically an a Jewish ethnostate that is mm-hmm. justified by the by Jewish identitarian politics, it's like suddenly it just becomes a complete inversion. And basically Ben Shapiro sounds like the, you know, raving, you know, genderqueer leftists that you see him destroying when he goes on college campuses. And it's just it's funny. I'm really interested to see how this whole Candace Owen things plays oh, out yeah, because sure. she is like I don't agree with her on everything obviously but I, she she's good on this issue and she like never backs down from things she believes in so I'm like is she really going to stay on the Daily Wire or is this going to become a, a huge thing I don't know um, but yeah, real, real quick I did want to touch on the anti-Semitism thing one more thing sure. I, I want to make a point that I find it even I find this anti-Semitism fervor amongst the the right or, or looking like this anti-Semitism witch hunt among the right even more ridiculous than the whatever isms you want to see or um, you see among the left, because I will give it to the left, at least like say something like racism. Like I can understand like some, like being against that more than I can understand being, or, or being hypersensitive about that as opposed to anti-Semitism. Cause and I get that everyone always wants to bring up the Holocaust from forever ago and use that to justify anti-Semitism. But I mean, maybe it's just my upraising, but like I, to me, a Jew is just like, usually just some generic white dude that I'm like, oh, you're a Jew? Oh, okay. And like, but whereas at least with like, I don't know, black people or, or, or Mexicans or whatever, you like, they are visibly different. Mm, so like, I yeah. like I can wrap my head around that different or something like someone who's gay. You're like, I'm, I don't do that. That's weird. Like I can get, so I, somebody would be like, oh, that's icky. Like. I don't like that. Or, or like there seems to be more credence to these actual like people having genuine hate for these groups than in my opinion there is for for like the Jews aside from when it's but it is always this cover because even like I, I've noticed even amongst like online some of the craziest Jew haters usually when you get down to it it really is like a even for most of them it seems to be a hate of Israel. Not really. I mean, they may be like jokes and be like, oh, well, they all work together. But even then, they're making a point that like people do tend to have in-group preferences. It's not like they're saying I hate – even most of them will say I don't hate every Jew. But there is something (laughs) – it's like – and this this does get into – it's not complicated, I guess. It's just like to people who don't – haven't looked into this, it'll seem complicated. But the the, the reason why a lot of anti-Zionism gets conflated with anti – Semitism or hating Jews is really the fault of the Jews because they have, th- at least the Zionist Jews, have really in- done their best conflated. to intentionally obfuscate those things and to make it that, like, being a Jew necessitates being a Zionist and and having these, like, listen, there's nothing wrong with in-group preference, like you said. Like, I wouldn't care if some Christians went and made some kind of Christian 
state or something. I wouldn't care if, if blacks made some kind of, a bunch of black people got together and made some kind of black ethno state. Like, if they do it voluntarily through private property rights and exchanges and contract, like, I think it's weird. Not really my thing, but, but go ahead. I don't care. And I don't care if, if Jewish people want to have a homeland. I don't care if they want to have a homeland in the area of where ancient Israel or what people call Palestine or whatever your flavor is there. If you want to live in that area, go for it. Just don't violate property rights of other people and don't don't lock a bunch of people up into basically an open-air prison. Lock them in with some Islamic terrorist fundamentalist groups that you put there and help to keep in power and then be like, oh my gosh, they hate us. How did this happen? It's like, yeah, yeah you did it. Like, that's how it yes. happened. And so when when people are raving against Israel and raving against Zionism because those things have been tied heavily to Jewish identity. When you're talking about it, if you're not like always, because I think the problem is a lot of us, like people of like my persuasion and your persuasion, we get tired of always trying to be politically correct and always trying to make caveats and things like that. And so we, we will sometimes just intentionally like, just kind of like, take the safeguards off and be like, whatever, we're not, we're not going to care about that. But then that stuff gets taken out of context and be like, oh, look at these people. They're saying they hate the Jews. I remember they did this hit piece on like the, like the Fakertarian people did this hit piece on like Ryan Dawson saying, look, he's saying it's the Jews every time. And I was like, no, like watch the whole video. He's talking about Zionists. He's talking about the yeah. Zionist project and stuff. And, and yeah, like, and, and, and you know what? It, if you go back and study the original Zionists, that's how they talked. That, that like they, they use the rhetoric. It's funny. It's like if you read if you read the the original Zionists and stuff, it matches up with what the anti-Zionists of today are like are 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 saying. It it so it, it's kind of it, it just it really just falls on people needing to study history and understand this. And it is a shame that again there is like a ten to twenty percent population of like the Jewish people who are actually both both today and historically who are vehemently anti-Zionist both for like regular humanity, because not all Jews are religious, right? So some of them, it's just for like common sense rules of like, no, this is like crappy what you're doing to these people and the way you formed this, like it wasn't right. And then some people do it on religious grounds. So it's like, and I can say, I mean, listen, like I can say I don't like the religion of Islam and I can criticize a lot of th things that Muslims do, but I don't, but like that doesn't mean I hate all Muslims, or I'm a bigot against Muslims, right? Like you can say that about people on the left. You can say about any group, right? And I think with the with the the like you brought this you brought this up with the Jewish question or whatever. It's because they define what Jewish is so ambiguously that you have to like yeah. be like it's impossible to always be talking in the most precise way possible to describe something that's essentially a moving target. Like, what are we talking yeah. about? Like, Jew. What do you mean by Jew? Religious Jew, ethnic Jew, Zionist Jew, anti. It's like it's like it, it it it's it's too much work, and so it, especially on Twitter and stuff, where people are just kind of going off and whatnot. People take things out of context. It's it's going to look like this big confusing mess, and then people who are mental troglodytes and just want to look for reasons to be offended, they're going to find those reasons to be offended. Is yeah, what I, think. I mean, name name a more nebulous term than Jew for real. Like, like I'm pretty sure. Like, look at Dave Smith. I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, I think it's like either his mom or somebody is either ethnically or like he's not. I don't even think he's like religious. Like, what what other thing can you be that it's that vague? Like to where like, well, I sort of know someone in my family that's this, so I guess that makes me this. Like, 
And it's like the ultimate in-group preference creator that you could think of. It's like, I met a Jew once, so that makes me Jewish, yeah. right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I'm not, I don't, I don't believe in Christianity anymore. I used to. I don't consider myself a Christian. So, it, like, it makes, like, I don't consider myself an ethnic Christian. I guess, I guess if that was a thing, I sort of would be. <laughs> the Catholics <laughs> like, kind of do that to, to some extent, yeah. a little bit. So, it does, it's like, because I've met they people tried. like, I'm Catholic. <laughs> and then I'll talk to them about, like, my faith. They're like, oh, I don't believe in that. I just tell mass and i'm like uh, okay that's weird <laughs> but yeah it's just why are you wasting your time right okay. <laughs> well we're coming at the end of time here jose but this has been really fun diving into these different topics give any closing thoughts you have on okc israel or just like uh last little monologue about why we, we need to be critical of the propaganda that governments and government influenced media try to shove down our throats and then give any plugs you want to give here at the end. And then I'll remind people that we're recording this in the past, but as you're listening to this in the future, I should have links in the show notes for a lot of this stuff, including the uh, interview that Jose did with uh, Taryn Siki's wife. What's your name, Tanya? I forget her name. Tanya. Tanya, yeah. So yeah, Jose, any, any, uh, give you the final word here before we close out. Just be careful with any sort of major event because 99 times out of 100, it's not exactly what you think it is. Like even this Israel one, you just look at the beginning, like just look at it. There was so many intelligence failures that were glaringly obvious. I've read multiple articles on this and it looks fishy as can be. And as time goes on, this this narrative that's been created is already falling apart, whether it be the 40 babies, which is, I think, got brought down to one baby. And then I believe I've seen stuff too that, the, uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not claiming this to be fact, to be clear, before anyone runs runs with this. But then I believe even the, the one baby, supposedly, that they, they then found out was likely killed by the Israeli forces. But I think they're attributing it to to Hamas because of the fact that, oh, it was in it was in, in a skirmish with Hamas, so they're kind of blaming it on. Like, it just gets, like, the, the, the facts on the ground almost never end up being the actual truth. And by the time the dust settles and you actually figure out what happened, it's almost never what you think it is. And I think we're, we're luckily, we're, or not luckily, but we're seeing this in real time with that. I mean, you'll still are, those, there's still people that are running with the 40 babies line. There's yep. still people running with the, they were running around raping all the women and stuff. And I don't know, maybe they were, maybe they did kill 40 babies. But the point is they're running around with all these unfounded assertions that are, or either very dubiously founded and claiming them as a fact. And as time goes on, as more and more people just say this unquestioningly, it just becomes part of the zeitgeist. And the same thing happens with things like OKC to where we've gone to the point where things like the fact that this was a lone wolf thing have already become part of the zeitgeist to the point where lone wolf is a term you'll hear all the time to kind of drive that point home. I know you brought up with that they had the crime bill that came out after that or the anti-terrorism bill that came out shortly after. But it's like even if there hadn't been a direct causal boom to boom thing to thing it's still just the idea that now you you could even just use the fact that now how that's affected the zeitgeist how that affects the yeah. the psyche of the population and how that goes going forward so i think it's important to be careful with any of these large events to not get you know sucked into one way or the other and to kind of stay objective about it and i think that's why it's important to look at these things from the past and the things from the future because it's different things from them awesome Thanks, Jose, again, for coming on. I agree with everything you just said there. I think it's important. Don't trust the, the narrative is being shoved. And if anything, the louder they try to claim something is true, the more skeptical you need to be and try to fact check that and just be wary of 
the motivations that these people have. And I know you're not a Christian anymore, Jose, but you agree with the sentiment. You know, it's a very Christian sentiment. The truth will set you free. I'm an if you want Christian. To, yeah, you're definitely a Christian, right? Yeah, honorary. <laughs> well, uh, you can add that to your Twitter bio. <laughs> but yeah, Jose, I will have links for everything you got going on in the show notes. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.